This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. I'm an internal optimist. So I believe we're on something good here in that. And I think the Trump reign revealed a lot of this so that people's eyes open. I know more white women that are aware of these um, these sort of racial injustices than they ever were before because of Trump and, and all that's happened and George Floyd and everything. This week, my guest is Miriam Abel-Fazli. She's a social impact consultant. And if you're wondering what that means, don't worry, she'll explain it to us in the episode. She's also the author of the political novel, Red Red. Miriam has lived and worked all over the world, helping both individuals and organizations bring about cutting edge change. She is a force, both for good, but also to be reckoned with. She asks the questions we need to be considering, a few of which you'll hear in our discussion. First of all, Miriam, so good to see you in I don't know how long. Was it three years? I think so. Um, Welcome. Thank you. Welcome to Everyday Ubuntu. And thank you for speaking with me. Excited to be here. Um, I'm going to start with a question that I ask everyone. And it's about our resumes not being a full explanation of who we are as a person, something my mom said. And as someone who has a very extensive resume, I want to ask you what you think is missing from it that people need to know about you. I often think that most of me is not on my resume. You know what I mean? I don't know if that makes sense, but it's like, it does. Um, there's so much, you know, that I think we all bring to a room, to a conversation, to um, the way that we work, uh, the way that we work with others that you cannot, I don't think you can pick up from a resume. So for me, well, one of the things is that I just finished a novel, right? That's not anywhere on my resume. Um so writing is something that has just been in my life forever. It kind of gets me through. Um, I think Brene Brown or somebody says they they write to stay alive, you know, to keep them going. And I think that writing is a therapy. It's a way for me to process mm-hmm. the world. And so whether it's, you know, essays and sort of articles or um, a novel, like recently, uh, that's just a key part of me. Um, so that that sort of introverted analysis, thinking, processing through words, and the love of words and characters and stories is huge. And then I'd say the other thing that's not on my resume is sort of my, my silliness, my playfulness, my, you know, just, I just like to have fun and, and play. And I love to have fun and play, particularly in the workplace. And so I don't think you can see that in my resume, but you're going to definitely feel that if you hire me or if you work with me. You know? So <laughs> I think that's the other thing. I just, I, it's kind of, it's not worth living if we're not playing. And I think we spend so much time at work that we should be playing at work, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Did, did you see that? There was a tweet where someone was like, my coworker asked me if we're meant to be working uh, during a coup. And it's like the most American thing ever. Like, no, please get off your computer. Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, uh, I, I, yeah, I was thinking um, I have not been this distracted since 9-11, the uh, Iran protest of 2009, and the Muslim ban. And those were just off days. Like, it's just, and I don't care who says anything. Like, I'm a human. And I think that's what this is about, ultimately, is like being human in the yeah. workplace. And that means 
you know, when there's a large coup happening in your fa- in your country, you you get to be human. And there's a huge movement towards that too. I've heard. Yeah, you know, don't like, be that person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just like don't be that you, person sending emails in the middle of it, not acknowledging it. Oh that's God. that's what's scary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, um, hey, can I get this from you? No, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That's I wild. yeah. I did nothing that day. Nothing. Okay. So you mentioned that you just wrote a novel, which I checked the mail about 20 minutes ago and I just got it in the oh, mail from you. So I'm thank you very so much. I thought it, yeah. Okay. Um, I know it's perfect. I'm excited to read it, but okay. Can you tell us about Red Red? Yeah. Um, I was in LA uh, election night, 2016. And so I was far from DC, which is where I was based and where I was working and living And DC is like its own ethos, its own, you know, cultural mm-hmm. world, like influences everything about you. Um, and so having been gone and being in LA, which is really the opposite of DC, you know, and, you know, knowing people that weren't voting, knowing people that didn't care, you know, I was around and I had never, you know, hadn't been around folks that were so sort of indifferent. And then I was, um, I, I woke up kind of, you know, still a little bit in shock, not, you know, I had spent time in Tennessee. So I knew Trump voters and I knew what was going on. I was, I felt it, but I still didn't believe, you know, he would win completely. And so I started to, I think I came home uh, November for Thanksgiving and I went into my room and I just wrote the first page, which the first page you'll see is like quite intense and quite sort of in it. Um, Okay. And I came out and I was like, okay, this is a, this is a big story. And basically, oddly, it, it's, a, it's a narrative fiction kind of about where we are today. So I wrote it in 2016, 2017 and finished it. And it's basically about the United States separating, seceding. Ooh. Yeah. Um, and there's a woman in the South. Uh, her name's Athena. And she's kind of dealing with it in Tennessee. Um, and she has a partner, Samuel, who's a black man. She's an immigrant. She's the daughter of an immigrant. Samuel's a black man. And um, they are sort of, you know, they are sort of activists in this, in this context or circumstance of this highly politicized America. Very strange, like very portentous, like bizarre prophecy type stuff. <laughs> um, but uh, I just felt it deeply and I had to get it out. There's there's police brutality. Um, there's all there's a mass migration from the uh, east of the country to California f- for mostly immigrants and people that are being deported oh so that they can live on something that's called the colony in California, which is a place that people are safe from ICE type um, activity. They have um, they have these ID cards that the president. Um, decrees that everyone has to have to show your movements across the country so it's it's, it's a lightly dystopian uh reality and then it ends into him pushing for um separation and um that's all i'll say but it's it's very fast paced it, it's 150 pages you know typically these novels are like 300 or something it's, it's boom 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 you you know most people a lot of people read it in a day um, there's there's a, a, a modern love story between Samuel and Athena in it. They have a very unconventional, very typical of us today relationship that keeps coming and going. And um, and she ends up having a child, um, which is a kind of a key part in the story because the child is somehow 
related to the president. Oh my goodness. Which ends up, yeah, um, causing a lot of tension. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so okay. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited to read Red Red <laughs> and thank you for sending that. So, I mean, you discussed them being activists and I would, you know, yeah. consider you an activist, but I know you're also described as a social impact consultant. So could you explain to my listeners what that means? Yeah, you know, I just needed a way to describe <laughs> One of the things that I do, because I, I yeah. went into consulting, I, a lot of times I'm doing full-time work for, or like when you and I met, you know, we we're both sort of full-time with this campaign, um, this sort of Muslim rights campaign. But um, then I went into consulting work after sort of getting, you know, overly frustrated over and over again at leadership and organizations at some point. I was like, you know, I was just like, I need to, I just want to do things on my own and support other leaders and not be sort of managed or supervised by leaders. And so I did that. And there's a million things that I do in that capacity. One of them is like mm-hmm. design solutions. So I wrote so many grants in my career that one of the things you're doing in grants is you're identifying the pain point or the problem, and then you're designing a solution uh, to to that social problem, that political or that economic problem. It's program work, essentially. And so one of the things I just started, sort of got good at is like analyzing the problem and then coming. So one of the things I used to do is solution design. But the other thing that I do is make sure what people are implementing has a social impact. Um, Because I feel like a lot of people are very output oriented, I've noticed. You know, it's like numbers of widgets, numbers of trainings, numbers of people attended, but not like what changed as a result of it. Like what's changed in people's lives, what changed in the landscape, what changed in the community, what changed in the neighborhood. And so I'm, I'm the kind of person that's constantly sort of drives you towards that outcome as opposed to just you know, we got 500 people to sign up or whatever. So that's what I think of when I think of social impact. And that can be for for profits or nonprofits, but, um, you know, anybody that's really trying to make some sort of change among a group of people or among a, a problem, um, a social or, you know, economic political problem. So that's, that's how I see it. I just come in and said, I like it. I think, it, I think it works. Okay. So then what change or impact do you hope to have on the world? Ooh. Good morning. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning of this week. Um, what change or impact do I want to have on the world? Um, well, the one that I've really been focused on since I moved back to Tennessee. So, right, I lived, I grew, was born and raised in Tennessee, in Nashville. And then I left in 1997 and went around the world and did all the stuff that was international. And I came back in 2018 and I had my son mm-hmm. when I met you. And um, you... I was pregnant, very pregnant, <laughs> and then had had the cutest son ever. And the thing that sort of has struck me, and it struck me almost in that first meeting we had together, and and since then, is is, and and I grew up here, right? So I know personally is um, the lack of equity in in Tennessee in Nashville, and the lack of diversity as a lived experience, where people feel comfortable being among people that are not Mm -hmm. like them. They don't talk like them. They don't look like them, but, but you feel comfortable. I mean, the closest, you know, for all of its faults, and this is not a perfect example, but you know, when you're on the subway in New York, everyone more or less knows how to be together on the subway in New York. Everybody there's, you know, everyone's New York makes you comfortable in all kinds of strange and, and, and um, new context, right? But I felt like down here, there's 
it's there's almost a segregation still at play um, socially. And so when I think about my son, I think about my experience um, and what I tell people and what I told the mayor's office when I was talking to them and others is that I really want to, and, and, the, and the work experiences I've had here, I really want uh, diversity to be a lived experience, particularly among white leadership and white leaders here, um, but, but really among everyone, so that people's radars of difference aren't going off the minute they start hanging out with each other. You know, oh, that smells, that food smells different. Oh, the accent, none of that happens. You're just comfortable hanging out together. Right. You know what I mean? Um, and then equity is a huge thing for me right now in Tennessee, in Nashville. We are the ick so-called city, and yet it's just, you felt it in the pandemic. There are people that are completely left out of all the growth and all the, and the income growth and the sort of huge houses and everything that's being built. And then there's a whole nother population that's having, you know, doing really, really well. And, and I think we should always be thinking of, of, of those that are not included in this great bounty that Nashville and Tennessee has, has certainly come into in the last 10 to 20 years. We have more companies moving here than mm. ever before in a pandemic. We have more individuals and families moving here and buying homes. We don't have enough homes. Can you imagine? We don't have right. enough inventory. So, so we need all that wealth and all that you know um, income that's coming here. It needs to be thinking about those that have been left behind, like significantly left behind. There are people that are can't get housing, just cannot afford housing in the city. I get it. Housing mm -hmm. is so expensive. Um, so that's the other impact I'm really looking at moving forward. And, and as I'm in Tennessee and Nashville is like really upping the way that people think about equity, the responsibility they feel towards equity and what we actually do towards equity. I want, I want us to all sense that we, and it's rather appropriate that I'm talking <laughs> to you, but I, I want us to all feel the sense that we are responsible for more than just our own piece of it. And I, and I, I feel that it's that, you know, my individual wealth and my individual success and my individual whatever, it's, it's quite strong, you know, and it's like, no, we have to look down the street because it's not separate. No. It's not, it's not distinct. So and I, those are the two things that I'm really thinking about these days. You know, it changes over time or whatever. Well, um, you have a capacity ago, to hold a lot. So, so I, <laughs> I believe that. But that's sort of my dedication right now is, is I'm here. I'm raising my son here. I love it here. And these are the, this is the vision I sort of have for the work that I do here. Well, okay. So we obviously can't mention Nashville without talking about that suicide bomber terrorist on Christmas Day, um, yeah. destroying you know a part of downtown. And to think that his ex girlfriend reported that he was building bombs, and the authorities didn't follow through on their check-in because he didn't open the door. Um, and we know that, you know, people can be shot in their sleep. So I'm wondering, how do you think Nashville residents are reckoning with all of this? And are they? You know, I, um, it's so much, right? It's so much like that happened on Christmas day. And then, and then all the things of this week happen. And then it's like, we can't, you know, we still can't get our breath on the immense, crazy events that are happening in our, in our reality. But 
the Christmas bombing has stayed with me and, and with everyone and, and with the people that have the businesses and the homes down there in that what, you know, what, what is going on? The anger and the frustration, like somebody gets reported pretty specifically on paranoia and, and bomb creation. Like the, I don't think you get a more sort of specific concern there. You know, like, it's not like, oh, there's a randomized, generalized feeling of ickiness. No, the man is creating a bomb. And it kind of just gets brushed to the side. And, and then you see what we saw, whatever day it was, Lord, Wednesday at the Capitol. Yeah, yeah. And a man, a man, a, a police officer has now been pronounced dead. And, and there were also yeah, and, there, and, and the police officer apparently was like killed by a fire extinguisher. So this disproportionate use of power and arms and um, force towards one population and not another one is just slapping us in the face all the time. To, and it's not just like, wow, this is unfair. This is not cool. It's like killing people and hurting our country. We have lost how much business revenue on Second Avenue from that bomb? How many people have lost their homes and their businesses that have been there forever? Those, those buildings were from the 1800s. You know what I'm talking about. This is not without a cost. And yet we don't treat it with the same severity and response that we would if they were a person of color or black, you know, and it's, it's driving me crazy to the point where I don't look any today because the frustration, the anger and the sense of powerlessness, it's the kind of the same sense of powerlessness you have over school shootings, you know, where it's just like, here we are again, here we bloody are again. And, um, I understand that we're on a historical trajectory. I understand that more eyes are being opened every day to these realities that were not open to them before. Um, I understand, and I'm not, I'm an internal optimist. So I believe we're on something good here in that. And I think the Trump reign revealed a lot of this so that people's eyes right. open. I know more white women that are aware of these, um, these, sort of racial injustices than they ever were before because of Trump and, and all this happened and George Floyd and everything. So there is some positives coming out of there, but it's just not fast enough and responsive enough. And, it, yeah. and it's killing, it bombed our city, our whole city on Christmas morning, you know, and our capital. And it, it's, we don't, it, honestly, it just seems like we don't care. You know, we'll just make do. We'll just make it, just like with the school shootings, we'll just figure it out. We'll just put more police on it. Well, police react a certain way to a certain population and another way to another population, and it doesn't solve this problem. Yeah, it's not the solution. So as you can tell, it's just, it's infuriating. Um, it, I just think about countries outside looking at us, a Christmas bomb in a, in a town like Nashville, like just, you know, I worked internationally for so long. I just think about if I had to go abroad right now and <laughs> do anything i mean first of all i have zero legitimacy i believe and secondly they'd just be like can you please explain to me what your fbi does what your police does why they didn't go into that break into that guy's house get those bombs out figure you know apparently they saw the trailer in the back it had a fence around it it looked suspicious you know nothing yeah well so then obviously you know this is a tough moment it has been for a while. 
And I wonder what sort of sustained you in these tough moments. Oh my God. Joy, joy. I love that. Dancing, playing, staying very focused on what is. And what is this this year is my son and my mother and my father who I've spent a billion more hours with than I ever <laughs> had before. We, we were each other's pandemic pod. I'm so grateful that I was here, you know, instead of gallivanting out in the world like I used to be. And um, I do feel very grounded and, and, and just love that, love that time. And so uh, obviously a two-year-old is just going to force you to be center and present and, and have fun and play, you mm -hmm. know, so that, I think that has really sustained me. Um, I force myself to just get on TikTok and dance. Oh, like every, yes. Yes. I'm not even on TikTok. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, I have zero followers and no, there's nothing going on there in terms of TikTok. I just, it's just a way for me to raise my vibration, raise the frequency you know, not say anything and just feel beautiful, gorgeous music. There's always music, right? Mm -hmm. There's just always music. And the other, so a lot of it is about getting in my body. Uh, another thing is I, I go running, not just for the health consequences, because that certainly is the case, being cooped up in an apartment or house all the time, but mostly for the serotonin release and the just, you know, that kind of drug, you know, that needs to get um, sort of uh, triggered in the brain that needs to kind of release into the body, because otherwise, you're just in your head, you're on screens, you're seeing the world, you know, implode. And so getting my body, and just feeling that has been really, it's all about getting in the body. And then I do 15 minutes of yoga with a little app that I found, um, which is just the right amount. If it was any more, I wouldn't do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's not strenuous or crazy. But it just, and so those, all that food, Oh my God, the pandemic <laughs> has been about food. What are we eating in the pandemic? Cooking, you know, cooking everything. Like I made a, I made an African peanut stew the other day, delicious. I mean, you know, just making all the things you all used to just buy out, you know, <laughs> because it's like a creative activity in the house. So um, food has been a really big one too. So I'd say those and writing, you know, yeah. those, have been, those have been really grounding, important things. Because um, life does go on despite the the craziness going on outside um and we've got to stick around to change it yeah it's i mean it's i think we're all traumatized but somehow yeah we're gonna okay so you you mentioned writing just now and yeah. i know you recently wrote a piece about ubuntu and so i'm wondering what it means to you well i don't even know if i've got it all right i'm still like midway through your book um and i'm, I'm figuring it out but this just this statement itself can mean anything. I guess it can mean anything to anybody, but it's such a profound statement. I am mm -hmm. because you are. It's almost like no one needs to explain anything to you. You can just think of that and, 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 and interpret that. And that says a lot about you. And it also says a lot about the statement. And to me, I have a writing group that I started because I was teaching some writing classes this summer. And I, I made Ubuntu the, the writing prompt that day. And for me, I wrote about difficult relationships and my role and responsibility in those relationships. I wrote about, you know, you know, I am because you are so much of the time we're like you and you mm -hmm. analyze the other person. It's because you're such a perfectionist that then, or you're such a, and then I am because you are, is like, sorry, what's your role in this? Right. Sorry. You know, it never allows you to shirk your responsibility or your participation in it. 
It never allowed. I am because you are. It never lets you just be because you are, you know, because that's what mm-hmm. I want to do. Like, because you are, everything is messed up. Well, there's an I am in there, you know, and what's my role in it and how, how am I comprised of you and how are you comprised of me? And I, so I just, you can take it micro into my relationship with my mother and, and the tensions and the beauties there. And then you can take it macro into, you know, what happened on Wednesday at the Capitol. You know, I am because you are. That is not happening in isolation of me. And, and what I loved in your book was it's just, I just been feeling and it's, and it's basic and it's common sense, but I feel it so much is that there's such this self-care. I'm going to take care of me. I'm going to learn my boundaries. I'm going to, I'm going to do me that vibe and particularly on social media. And it's like, no, like, yes. Okay. Everyone heal, everyone deal with all your stuff, but really we need to get back to like, I'm responsible for you and you're responsible for me, not in a codependent way or something like that. But like we, I'm part of humanity. You know, humanity is my, I guess it's kind of the same thing I was saying. Like if some of us are extremely wealthy in one city and some of us are being held behind by that wealth, we're not right until we start thinking about each other. You know, right. it's not, it's not okay. The, the story's not over. And in the same way, like, I just, I loved how you said that. Like, we, we are not, uh, no man is an island. We are not separated from each other. We are responsible for the things that happen. I don't want to give too much responsibility to everybody. It's so much pressure on everyone's shoulders. Everything that's happened. Trump's happened because of all of us. Yeah. Well, but I want us to go back to like feeling con- like connected again. Um, I just, I'm kind of over this whole, like, I'm going to do me. I'm going to take care of me, you know? And I get that that is important for health and stuff like that. But yeah, how is that? You know, I was listening to Sonia Ren- Renee Taylor and she was saying, yeah. you know, she got a COVID, she got her COVID diagnosis and she was talking about, she was shocked at how the public health system uh, treated her uh, with the COVID. Like they're like, they didn't make her stay home. They, they just kind of trusted that she would, you know, there's no real system yeah it's just like suggestions and yeah for covid there's nothing really going on at the macro even micro level to, to contain covid and she she was saying we're not a country of care no and i think that hits on ubuntu too like if we were a country of care it wouldn't be enough that me and my family has health insurance you know to be it would be it would only be enough if everybody was cared for and taken care of. And if there were systems of that kind of care, but in our place, it's like, I got mine. I got my gated community. I got my house. And I don't mean to talk people down. I mean, there's a dream come true. That's the American, mm-hmm. but that we've got to find a, a balance with this. We've got to come back a little bit over to, we are together. You know, we are united. Um, not united politically, but like we are human. Yeah. I mean, I don't get the, I don't get, I logically cannot compute when people want to take things away from someone that'll harm them. So like I saw a tweet yesterday that was like, this all started because a black man tried to give you all healthcare. And like, that is, that is what it is. If you think down to it, it's like, we were so upset about this black man being your president, even to think he gave us this healthcare and still you're angry. Yeah, we're yeah. so angry about this. Yeah. And we're trying to take away people's health care in a time when we're 4,000 people died on Wednesday. Like, yeah. It's just, it's mind boggling the way that our brains work. Or that's a, you know, that's a whole nother discussion of what has happened in terms of manipulation. Mm-hmm. 
ultimately. I think that's just manipulation. Uh, here's, I mean, we're everyone's been thinking forever about how's the Trump effect and what's right. going. But I, the formula I've come up with is um, a bunch of things that are ha- happening to a specific demographic, white men and white females, right, in America, um, whatever it might be, a psychological experience that they're having, plus extreme manipulation through media and comms, you know, that triggers and pushes the exact buttons that need to be pushed within this, within that demographic, um, that equals immense, you know, irresponsibility, cruelty, um, inactive, you know, inactivity, uh, not wearing masks, all that stuff. That's sort of the result of these two things that have happened. Um, you know, when I think about, I, you know, there's this thing of self-determination that's mm-hmm. really big for this. And whatever that means today, um, whether it means like I, I know how to do it and I get out of my way and I'm the best for this and get out of my way. And then messaging that plays into that. Well, yeah, masks are getting in your way. Well, yeah, the government's getting in your way, you know, and plays off of that big self-determination feeling. Then you end up in the most bizarre logic, most bizarre sort of behavior. Democrats want to give you $2,000 stimulus check, but you're going to vote Republican to get $600 stimulus check, you know? Um, So it's, it, I don't know, it, that kind of, that kind of irrational thinking, I think is, is largely as a result of manipulation. I mean, thinking manipulation, but also the fact that we live in a country that we've clearly sort of discussed, you know, we, we love to help the rich and we detest helping the poor. What can we as individuals do to help in this system? Such a good question. And I think so many people are asking that politically and, you know, otherwise. Um, well, okay, so there's, there's a few things like voter turnout in Georgia, awesome. 4.4 million, yeah. double to 2018. <laughs> so go out there and do, you know, push the levers that you're allowed to push as a citizen, right? I also think that we're going to see, and I hope to be part of that, um, just more awareness and education on what it is we, what our rights are as voters, you know? So just really getting, really, really, really getting engaged as a citizenship, as a citizenry. Um, knowing, oh, these are my voter laws. Oh, this is what it means, a provisional ballot. This is, you know, just those kind of details. And then um, thinking about, you know, wealth and, and, and the gap. I mean, I have, I have, I feel like I've been changed by the pandemic. I've been changed by how much mm-hmm. wealth I think I need from what I thought, you know, before I thought I needed this, this house, this, 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 you know, private school, I don't think I need any of that anymore. And I'm willing to sacrifice a lot of it for a more equitable society, you know, Um, because I also know that my joy and my love and my happiness doesn't come from any of that because I've learned that this year. So I think, um, Mm -hmm. I I mean, this is not going to be super palatable, but I think we have to really, as people, be crystal clear on what is important to us. Like what our values are and are we willing to sacrifice the things that are not part of that so that everyone can have a more peaceful life? Because I tell you what, when you are in poverty, mm-hmm. it is, it is anxiety day and night. You are just trying to figure out how to pay for diapers, pay for rent, pay. It is, it's a tough existence. 
and a resilient one and a gritty one and a creative one. And if we could help those people in poverty feel a little bit more peace, just a little bit more calm, because they don't have to, they don't have to wake up every day and be like, how am I going to buy these groceries? We would do our society an immense amount of good that we don't even know what that would be. You know what I mean? Because those, those psychological factors play into everything that's going on. Uh, so I think, I think honestly, in a, in a weird way, what would you be willing to sacrifice to make society better? Would it be that little bit, that little bit of wealth? Yeah. That little bit of bonus? You know, would it be um, some of your time? Would it be, I, I moved to the South and I love how much people have time to talk to you down here. People talk to you all the time down here. I was pregnant kind of on my own. And I remember I'd call these restaurants and say like, hey, I ordered some food. I'm starving. Oh, yeah. And um, my, no, I had my newborn with me in the car. And I'd be like, I have no way of coming inside and getting it, but I'd really like it. And he's asleep. And they would literally walk out of their restaurants. It was not like a carry out <laughs> and find my car and give it to me. Like, that's the tiniest thing, but it was, was so human and so thoughtful and not a service that they do or whatever. Um, and a lot of people have done all kinds of those kinds of things this year. I mean, I believe our, our society was saved and is saved out of regular folks this year, not out of government programs, not at all. It was regular people helping regular people. And, and the worship of like gabillionaire entrepreneurs and stuff that is totally unfounded in my mind because I've seen more grit, more creativity, more, you know, resourcefulness and regular folks doing every, you know, trying to keep themselves their and their lives going in this year than I have in any story about Steve Jobs or whatnot, you know? So, um, I, I, yeah, I, I'd say think out of the box about how you can support each other. If you can walk out of that restaurant and give a, give a newborn mother you know, mother of a newborn or, or lunch, if you could maybe spare that 200 bucks and give somebody else a Christmas present that they can't handle, you know, that they can't cover. Um, maybe think through a different lens about your experience and, and what you're going through and say, maybe it's not like that for somebody else. Put a different lens on your, on your existence and say, okay, maybe I'm not thinking about the rest of humanity when I'm thinking about myself in this way, you know, or my experiences. I think that lens is really, really going to save us moving forward. I agree with that. And I, I really love that. Um, you know, I was going to ask you about some helpful advice, but I feel like that is, that is where we all need to be right now is this like wider perspective, a different lens. Um, you know, Ed and I talk a lot about we have a great relationship and things are great and we have great communication. And then the one thing we return to is like, because neither of us is stressed about where the next paycheck is going to come from. So we have the time to work on communication and all these like soft things that some people don't have the time to. And I don't think people think about even just that. Like, it's difficult to keep a relationship going when you are stressed about money. Oh my God, about yeah. money. I mean, money kills, money is a relationship killer. I mean, you're not sleeping. There's just there's just so much happening. Um, and so, no, I, I really like that you said that. And I feel like I'm going to, I'll quote you, but I'm going to keep saying to people, like, you know, what sacrifice can you take? What lens can you look at your life through? And, and I don't like the word sacrifice because it's like, I'm not sacrificing. I've been working my ass off for this. You know what? We're adults and people can, like, learn to sacrifice. It's the, For some reason, it's 
people that look like us have been able to sacrifice our entire lives and the people have never had to, it's so frightening. And I think it's time for them to learn. So. Yeah. And whatever the word is, you know, in, in Christian theology, there's ways to, you know, sacrifices is, is, is value. There's ways, there's words and branding of this that could probably be better, but basically it's what do you actually really need and what can you give to make the world, to make your community better, you know? And I come from my own set of privilege and my own, and, and a lot of that has been broken down this year, thankfully mm-hmm. and difficultly. And whoo, I had, I've had rough, rough nights, you know what I mean? Um, but uh, I think it's really, really focused me on what do I want out of this life and with my son and what do I want him to learn from me? Right. Um, and it certainly isn't that like we got our gated house. Like I don't, I don't know what that would give him except for more anxiety to go get his gated house, you know, and go into some field of work to get that gated house and to, to exclude a bunch of people because he wants to get that gated house and maybe change himself externally to get, you know, all the yeah. things that he, to get there and then to get there and it being empty and him wondering like, what, is this really at all anything that is about me? No, you know, so and I don't mean to talk crap about gatehouses. No, I, I can, but I know wonderful people in them, and and I and and wonderful people that have been generous this year that could be because of their wealth, and I and and that's wonderful as well. Um, but even with gated houses, you know, it, in the book I talk about with gated houses, it's like people in South Africa who are trying to protect themselves are Black South Africans. So it's it's also it's also that thing. It's like, would we all need gated houses if we all? Like, you know, if you like a gate because of the aesthetic, sure, go for it. But would we all need gated houses if we all felt that we had a home and shelter and food? And Right. And it's also exclusion again. You know, it's more exclusion. It's more like I don't want you, – you have to fit these criteria to be around me, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, you know, I'm, I, I think we should, like – break down the walls of exclusion and, and, and just get to know each other more. It's, I think we're less scarier than we seem. Absolutely. I, I feel like we could go all day about this. Um, but I would like to ask you, who are some of the people who have inspired you? So many people, right? I mean, I, it's, for me, it's not, I feel like I find inspiration all the time and at at the different phases I'm in Mm -hmm. my life, right? Like professors have been wonderful in terms of them believing in me and then inspiring me to do more and be more um I don't love celebrity like celebrity inspires you know because it's like it's not it's hard to connect I do I you know I do listen to conversations and podcasts and stuff like yours that help like think through and stuff like that but um obviously Stacey Abrams is unbelievably inspiring and the crew of people and women mm-hmm. and black women that did what they did. But just I, in terms of recent inspiration, just the narrative of you commit to this 10 year goal, you get elected to be governor. They kick you out of that. You don't go and hide. You don't go and say, screw you. Even though you're a black woman and everything has said, screw you. Mm-hmm. Like you don't know anything to any of these people, you know what I mean? Not to the state of Georgia, not to, you know, anybody and yet you get to work she just gets to work and then she works and she works and did the damn thing like did and it she puts a white man into power and a black man into power and is proud of it it gives me goosebumps 
I want to flight. I, I'm a flight. I'm a flight person, not a fight person. So I want to run. I want to hide. <laughs> I want to be mad. I want to have a temper tantrum. I want to think about all the ways that I was perfect and everybody else wasn't. And, you know, and just go into oblivion in my own ego centric, you know, prison that I've created for myself. She is like, I'm going back to work and I'm, I might not get anything out of this. You know, I mean, she, she didn't get Senate. She didn't get into that role. You know, it's not her. And she did it. And I just, I have goosebumps still time out. It just, it, that's unbelievable inspiration to me. Keep working. Like that's the thing I've really had to start to really take seriously. Fail and fail again and fail again and fail again and have a series of failures and keep working. And that's very different than what I've always thought, which is like, succeed, succeed, get, get more popularity and more approval and more money and more status and your identity feels better. And no, it's fail, fail again, and just go towards a thing that matters to you that is of your deepest values. And so I would say her right now, um, I just, we could all learn from like not pursuing things that are just about us. Right. I mean, that follow through is. Yeah. I mean, and it's just, it's just not about her. No. And so many entrepreneurs and everything, it's kind of really about them. You know what I mean? And and she just, this was about her democracy. Well, yeah, you, you think about politicians and it's about them. And now you're like, wow, she really, really, really should have been our governor because <laughs> she is not that kind of politician. Yeah. Oh, so... Yeah, she's she's she and the crew. I, I recognize that she didn't do it alone, and I think that that that's in your, yeah, yeah, and that's in your book too. Like this whole self-made, you know, crap. You know, nobody's doing anything alone. None of us are doing anything alone, and we need to stop thinking like that. I don't know why we think that's so amazing. Like, oh, he did it all by himself. You know, no, like Jeff Bezos did it all by himself. Yeah. Or no, Elon Musk just became the richest man in the world. All but no, like there's hundreds and thousands of people that are getting that person there mm-hmm. and she'll say it. Um, and um, we need to know that whenever we're working towards a goal, um, it, it doesn't happen by yourself. No, you, know? you have to bring people in. Mm-hmm. So what would you say is your greatest fear for humanity? Our selfishness. Mm. Our just our self, our, this whole thing, this whole self-determination, self-sufficiency. It's about me, you know, let me just get my plot of land and my, you know, um, our selfishness, like, and the, and this, this thinking that has allowed for people not to believe in the virus, for instance, this thinking <sighs> that has allowed people to not believe facts and science, this logic or this rationale that allows for people not to, to be objective, the lack of objectivity. Um, what is it, whatever is behind that psychologically, whatever is behind that economics, socially, politically, you know, whatever all the factors are that has resulted in this thinking, you know, I have a friend who's just so upset because her, her friend that's a spiritual entrepreneur and there's tons of them that voted for Trump has the virus and keeps saying mantras to try to get over it and exposes people by running errands and doing all kinds of things. No, And, and there's, there's, there's just this thinking of, you know, self-sufficiency and I know how to fix this and it's not really a thing, whatever all that is, I think that's really what's, um, what's damaging us profoundly right now. And um, there are people responsible for promoting and perpetuating that thinking 
in, po- in populations of people. Mm-hmm. And there's other underlying currents that are creating that thinking. And it's, it's having a huge impact on our society and our country. We, we, we are, we're pretty, we're pretty silly right now comparatively to the rest of the world. I would say silly is, is definitely a word. Yeah. I like you say silly. I say like lack of emotional intelligence. Like there's something going on. And people say ignorance, but I know highly educated folks that believe and feel these ways, you know, so it's something else. It's a, it's a, it's a way of thinking and processing events. Okay. So then on a nicer note, what is your greatest hope for humanity? I mean, all this activism, all this voter turnout, all this new awareness, I, people are saying things that they just never would have said before. Things are, it is okay to really look at the, um, the immense discrimination and brutality toward black populations right now. I mean, nothing's being done about it, but it is finally a conversation uh, everyone can finally see um, that this is really disproportionate. Um, so there's just awareness that's sprouting that I'm excited about. I'm mm-hmm. excited about a progressive agenda. I'm excited about uh, a democratic Senate and a democratic Congress and a democratic president being able to take forward a progressive agenda um, that could be good in terms of healthcare and other inequities. Um I'm excited about our youth. I'm excited about my son. They're they're not going to tolerate what we did. You know, they're not no. going to be okay with a lot of what we were. Um, and just like that that school that started the anti school shooting movement and had that great march and those leaders that were incredible. I just think that there's just going to be less tolerance. And and these kids that have been through the pandemic are just going to be incredible people because they have done hard things. Yeah, their resilience is going to be super strong. And they, and they know hard things. Yeah. Then they don't expect everything to just happen the way that they want. And I think we need that. We need a generation like that. We do. I agree. Well, Miriam, thank you for speaking with me today. I really enjoyed it. And honestly, we could keep going and we may yeah, offline. It was great. Thank you so much, Mungi. This is wonderful. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today and don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.